pleasure to be with you this morning and to get into God's Word together. Nothing has the potential to turn strangers into friends and friends into family like a shared meal. Nothing has potential to turn strangers into friends and friends into family like a shared meal. This reality transcends cultures and time periods, transcends rich and poor. There's perhaps no greater way to invite someone into your life and to invite yourself into someone's life than by sharing a meal. There's perhaps no greater way to grow a friendship than by regularly sharing a meal. Human relationships are began, built, and nourished around shared meals. It is around a shared meal that we fall in love and get married. It's around shared meals that we watch babies grow into adults. It's around shared meals that we set and dictate a family culture. It's around shared meals that we build new friendships, that we strengthen existing friendships, that we laugh and tell stories, discuss good days and bad days. It is over shared meals that we grieve and celebrate at funerals and banquets. Nothing has the potential to turn strangers into friends and friends into family like a shared meal. Now in the New Testament, I don't know if you've noticed this, but three different times in the Gospels, Christ makes explicit the reason why he came to live among fallen humanity. First, Luke 19.10, for the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Mark 10.45, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. He came to save sinners. This is the good news of the gospel. But do you know the third expression of this phrase that is used to communicate the Son of Man coming. The first two communicated why he came. The third one communicates in many ways how he came, how he went to accomplish the mission of why he came. Matthew eleven nineteen, 19. The Son of Man came eating and drinking. And they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Jesus came eating and drinking. He indeed was the friend of sinners. He demonstrated this friendship by eating with sinners. His mission in many ways was largely fulfilled by and over meals. One commentator, Robert Karras, says in Luke's gospel, Jesus is either going to a meal, at a meal, or coming from a meal. This morning as we continue our march throughout Matthew's gospel, we'll look at Jesus' last meal. That's what we think about as we think about the Lord's Supper, this moment where he's preparing his disciples for his coming death, where he celebrates with them the Passover meal and then transforms that meal into the Lord's Supper. Now, usually I make my big idea explicit to you at this point, but for this morning, I would rather just kind of jump into the text and let that uh, point become explicit more and more and even conclude with that point. So let's pray one more time, ask for God's help, and we will jump in. Father, nourish us with your word through Jesus Christ and by the power of the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' gracious and good and saving and kind name we pray. Amen. First, I want to talk to you this morning about trusting the king's win. W-H-N. Trust the king's win. 
Let me remind you in Matthew 26 the context of what's going on when we pick up with our text today. First, if you remember from last week in verse 2, Jesus told his disciples that after two days the Passover was coming and then he would be delivered up to be crucified. The chief priests and the elders start plotting in stealth. How do we get him killed? Let's wait till after the Passover feast when all these people are in town. Let's wait till after everything calms down. Then in stealth we will arrest him and have him executed. Mary has already anointed Jesus for burial with extremely expensive perfume. And that's been in great contrast to Judas, who's already sought to betray Jesus by asking the leaders, the Jewish leaders, how much will you give me if I betray him to you? And he betrayed him for merely three pieces, 30 pieces of silver. And then chapter 26, verse 16, at the end of our text from last week, read, and from that moment, he, that is Judas, sought an opportunity to betray him. And then in verse 17, we open this morning. Now, on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? Again, I mentioned some of this last week, but to summarize and help you understand contextually what's happening, the festival of unleavened bread was a seven-day festival celebration during which Israel would uh, celebrate the Passover. The Passover, as you remember, was that great event we read about in Exodus chapter 12. Israel was held captive by Pharaoh in Egypt. God told Pharaoh to let his people go. Pharaoh refused to, and so God threatened and said, I'm going to send forth these plagues. And in each of the ten plagues, each of these plagues was demonstrating Yahweh's superiority over the false gods in Egypt. The tenth plague was the final plague, the worst plague, the death of the firstborn. God prepared Moses and Israel, indeed his people, and said to them, you must be ready in this final plague. You must be ready to act in faith. They must be prepared for this final plague. God gave strict instructions. The death angel would pass over Egypt through the night and kill the firstborn children and animals in every household in Egypt. However, every family in Israel was to kill an unblemished, spotless lamb as a sacrifice for their sins and take blood from this lamb and put it over the doorpost to save them from God's judgment. They would eat the lamb and the unleavened bread the night before the Passover They would burn up everything else in worship and they would take that blood and spread it over the door. Then the the, the death angel came overnight, saw the blood of the unblemished spotless lamb on the door and would pass over the homes of Israel, sparing their firstborn, but killing all of the enemies of God's firstborn. This was a decisive event that shaped God's people. This gave them their identity. We are the people who God delivered and saved and set free out of bondage to Egypt. And this Passover meal and this Feast of Unleavened Bread would be an annual remembrance of that which God had done to set them free. An annual remembrance. This is who we are, the people of God, the redeemed people who've been set free from bondage in Israel. And so the disciples asked Jesus, hey, where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? It's this annual week, this annual feast of unleavened bread. That the Passover is coming. And so they asked their master and king, where would you have us prepare to eat this meal? And Jesus responds in verse 18. He said, go into the city to a certain man and say to him, the teacher says, my time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. Now, we don't know from Matthew's text, and even if you look at the other synoptic synoptic gospels, whether or not Jesus had sent forward and communicated with this man previously, or if he did this supernaturally. 
All we know is he had a man prepared and a place prepared in that man's home where he and his disciples would celebrate the Passover. And so he tells his disciples, go, he's going to be ready. He will have the room for us to eat this meal. But what I want to highlight for you this morning is a massive theological statement that Jesus makes. He says, my time is at hand. You may just gloss over that in reading and and looking to what happened and significance of this text. But he says, my time is at hand. This has massive theological substance. This has massive theological implications for us as followers of Christ. Back in chapter 12, verse 14, about a year and a half before this moment, Jesus healed a man with a withered hand on the Sabbath, and it upset everybody. And we read in the second half of verse 14, the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. So for a year and a half, people have been wanting Jesus dead. Jesus is not dead. (laughs) For a year and a half, people have been seeking ways to end him, and he's not been ended. But in this moment now, suddenly he says, my time is at hand. Even in John's gospel, there are four different statements Jesus makes about why he's not yet dead. While people wanted him dead for a year and a half, but he's not dead. Why? John 7, 6, Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. John 7, 8, you go up to the feast. I'm not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. John 7, 30, so they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him. Why? Because his hour had not yet come. John 8, 20, these words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him. Why? Because his hour had not yet come come. Jesus has not been captured nor killed up to this point because it wasn't his time yet. But now he says, my time is at hand. And in just a few verses, even as we look at soon in the garden of Gethsemane, when he's praying and sweating great drops of blood in chapter 26, verse 45, he says, see, the hour is at hand and the son of man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. So even when he's betrayed, he's betrayed at just the right time. So what is the big theological point? Jesus was betrayed, arrested, and crucified exactly when he wanted to be. Not one second earlier or one second later. Even his enemies were synced up to his Google cow. (laughs) Like he's making sure everything is going to my plan. And even my enemies who will betray me and are seeking to kill me, have been seeking to kill me for a year and a half, they're synced up to my timeline and underneath my sovereign control. Ultimately, Jesus, not Judas, nor the chief priests or the elders, determined when his betrayal would happen. The when is determined by him. Time is under his sovereign rule. Every second on every clock belongs to King Jesus. You and I are subject to time. We can't speed it up or slow it down. (laughs) That sun is going to go down tonight, and there's nothing you can do to stop it. (laughs) And Lord willing, it will rise again in the morning and you can't speed it up and you can't slow it down. You are subject to time. There's nothing you can do to adjust it, to speed your life up or to slow your life down, to get time back or to add time to your future. You have zero control over time. You're subject to time. But we have a God who can make the sun stand still. We have a God who time is subject to him. He's not subject to it. He's sovereign over time. Time is not sovereign over him. Now, do you see the significant connection to your life yet? God's sovereign control over redemptive history should bring us as his people indescribable comfort in his sovereign control over our lives. If the king of all the universe controlled his own betrayal and his own crucifixion and death, burial, and resurrection, then surely controlling mine and your life is not a big thing to him. Oh, my anxious brother or sister, 
He's got you. He knows your anxiety about the timing of certain events in your life. And he wants you to know he's in control and he's good. He's got you. He's not behind in your life. He's not out ahead of you in your life. He's in sovereign control of the time in your life. You can rest in the invisible hand of God's timing over the circumstances of your life. If he can control his son's betrayal, he can control you, his disciples' life and circumstances. He's wise. He's good. He's powerful. Spurgeon said it like this. Remember this. Had any other condition been better for you than the one in which you are, divine love would have put you there. Had any other condition been better for you than that which you are, divine love would have put you there. Christian, fight anxiety in your life by resting in the sovereign control of Christ. He controls the clock. He's not anxious at all. He knows that you're worried you're running out of time. He knows you're anxious that your kids are growing up too fast. He knows that you're anxious because your rent is due. He knows that you long to be married. He knows that you long to have children. He knows if you need a job, he's in control. Do not be anxious about anything, the Apostle Paul says, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. He's in control. He's sovereign over the wind in your life. Non-Christian friend, the one true God revealed in Christian scripture is sovereign. Your days are numbered, and he's in control of that number. He knows when your life will end, and you will account to him on the day he intends for you to account to him. He is sovereign, but he's also gracious. Consider his grace and mercy to you, non-Christian friend, even right now in letting you hear his word. Letting you hear about his sovereign control and his gracious mercy to you. In Acts 17, we read, And he made from one man from every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. Listen to this. Having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he's actually not far from each one of us. Now, Christian friend, he determines when and where you live. He's determined in his sovereign care when you would be born, what time period, where you would be born, what your address is, and what your birth date is. He knows when the final day is. And in his grace and mercy, he's letting you know how to have right relationship with him, even now, even this morning. Trusting God's sovereign timing in your life by placing your faith in Christ even today. Jesus has displayed time as his, and he's determined it's time Therefore, we can trust the king's when. Secondly, we can also trust the king's how. So we can trust his when, but we can trust his how. Passover preparations have been made. The sun is set according to his timing, and the meal has begun for the disciples. Verse 20, we read, When it was evening, he reclined at table with the twelve. And as they were eating, he said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. I want you to imagine this moment. The Passover meal with your closest friends who've now become your family suddenly gets sobered up really, really quickly. This Passover celebration, this Passover meal with the king of glory says somebody sitting at this table, this inner circle, one of you will betray me. Imagine this. You're sitting at the table as one of the 12. 
You've left everything behind, families, jobs, homes, reputations. And yet the king of kings looks at the table with sadness in his eyes and says, one of you will betray me. Cannot imagine how hard their hearts were pounding within their chests. We even read in verse 22, and they were very sorrowful and began to say to him one after another, is it I, Lord? Is it I? Notice their hearts pound not with suspicion, but introspection. So they're not pounding saying, is it him? Is it him? Is it him? Is it him? No, no, their hearts are pounding. Is it I? Am I the one to betray you? We have something to learn from the disciples here. When you're the presence of the king of glory, you're not going to be worried about anybody else. You're going to be wondering, is it I, Lord? Not was it him or was it her? Have I been faithful to you? Am I the one who's rejected you? In this moment, when you're in the presence of the king, you say, is it I? When you give account to him, your faithfulness will be your concern, not another's. And notice what Christ says in verse 23. He answered, he who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. Now again, Passover meals were usually spent with, as most meals, with family. But remember what Christ taught earlier in his ministry, chapter 12, verse 50. Whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Christ is with his family, his faith family. This is why we take serious the covenant and membership at our church and even call our members meetings, not members meetings, but faith family meetings. Christ is saying, no, no, this is my family. He who does the will of my father in heaven, that's my mother, that's my brother, that's my father, that's my sisters. Like this is my family. He's with his family in that moment, yet one of them will betray him. It's one thing to be wounded by an enemy. It's another thing entirely to be betrayed by family. That's a different level of pain. And think about Christ, or Judas. He's heard all of Jesus' teaching. He's witnessed every single miracle. He's shared Passover meals with Jesus, even having this Passover meal with Jesus, and yet he still didn't love Jesus. Judas had the Lord's Supper with the Lord of the Supper, and yet he didn't love him. Every text we study with Judas in it is a sobering reminder. It's possible to be in church your whole life, to know all the Bible stories, to have never missed a Sunday, to have avoided all the big bad sins, whatever they are, according to you, to have served on every committee or team in a church, to have participated in baptism in the Lord's Supper, though falsely, and still not love Jesus. Church folk, please don't play games with Christ. You may fool all of us. You may fool everyone else. You will not fool him. Repent and run to his mercy even this morning. But notice, even this act of betrayal, again, is not disconnected from the sovereign plan of Christ. Look again at verse, 20, uh, verse 24. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him. Jesus predicts this betrayal because he knows his Bible. He knows he came to seek and save sinners. He knows he came to seek and save the lost. God is totally so sovereign over Judas' betrayal, and yet Judas is absolutely responsible. So he said, no, no, I'm going just as it was written of me. Everything in the Old Testament was written and pointing to this coming Christ. And he says, all of this was written. Everything is happening according to plan. God is totally sovereign. And yet Judas is absolutely responsible for his betrayal. Look at the second part of verse 24. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Judas's betrayal is according to the sovereign God's plan. And yet it is Judas's responsibility. 
See, friends, faithful doctrine teaches that God is totally sovereign and yet sinners are completely responsible. It's both and, not either or. God is sovereign. We are responsible for our life. It's both and. We see it even in this verse. God is totally in control. Judas is totally responsible for his rebellion. And please don't miss the weightiness of this last statement when Jesus says it's better for that man if he had not been born. That statement alone rules out universalism and annihilation. Universalism is that false doctrine, that false belief that eventually everyone will be saved. Well, it can't be that everyone's going to be saved if Jesus says it'd be better if Judas never would have been born. Judas is clearly not eventually going to be saved when he makes that statement. But also some would teach annihilation, that there's no eternal hell, that you just die and you are ended, you're annihilated. Jesus would not say it's better if he had never been born if he was just going to be, if Judas was just going to be annihilated. No, hell is eternal. It's a real conscious torment. Judgment is substantial and real and not everyone is saved. This, is, this means we need to understand that, again, Christ is bringing forth a grace and a mercy and telling us how to avoid that judgment. But I also want to talk about, just for a second, just the difference between betrayal and denial. We'll see in the coming weeks, all of the disciples of Jesus end up denying him, Peter most famously. In Jesus' great time of need, we'll see even in the Garden of Gethsemane, they fall asleep. He's like, just pray for me, and they fall asleep. Peter's like, I'll never, I'll never deny you. Jesus is like, by the end of the day, you're going to deny me. <laughs> three times, not just once. Never, I'll die for you. He denies Jesus three times. And yet Peter and all the disciples who denied Jesus and abandoned Jesus in his great time of need are restored to fellowship later. What's the difference between these disciples who mess up really bad and deny Christ in this great moment and Judas, who's a betrayer, who it would be better if he had not been born? Pay attention to the difference between Judas's question to Jesus and the rest of the disciples' question to Jesus. Now, we don't know. It seems to be because none of the disciples respond. This conversation that, that Jesus has with Judas is probably just a one-on-one -on -one conversation because the disciples don't respond. But notice what Judas says in verse 25. Judas, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? He said to him, You have said so. Now, you may have missed it. What's the difference between his question and the disciples' question, the other disciples'? They said, is it I, Lord? He said, is it I, teacher? We don't have one record in the New Testament of Judas calling Jesus Lord. So he's one that's like, no, no, no. You're a good teacher. You've been impressive. I've watched you. Eh, I'm going to betray you because I want some money. Is it I, teacher? Notice this, what he responds to and what he calls Jesus even in that moment. The enemies of Jesus are willing to call him a good teacher, but only disciples of Jesus will call him Lord. As disciples, we confess Jesus is Lord. He's not merely a good teacher. He's not merely a moral teacher. He is Lord of everything. He is the King of glory. He's the only path to God. Or he's a phony. You call him teacher, you reveal you have no interest in who he actually is, according to himself. We call him Lord. We humbly trust him, even when we don't understand, because we know he knows what he's doing. Think about redemption. Again, it's okay. We trust him in the when, but we also trust him in the how. Often God's ways are not our ways. Often when he's bringing forth redemption, it's in such a way that we're like, I would never do it that way. Let's just think about it. You're going to, mankind is going to fall 
And then you're going to promise the seed of a woman will reverse all of this? Genesis 3.15? Like, it's going to be through Abraham and Sarah? Like, when they're 190 that they'll have a child? <laughs> like, it's going to be through them that this seed will be preserved? Moses the stutterer? Like, David against Goliath? Your people marching around walls and singing and they'll fall down and win? You'll stop the sun. Like, God often does things not according to the way we think he ought to do things. But we can trust his how. Even when we don't understand, we can, like, we can look at the history of redemption and say, often his people don't understand, and yet he's faithful to accomplish exactly what he promises to accomplish. No one would come up with a story except God where the Messiah, the coming Christ and King, is the suffering servant. No one would write a story where the hero of the story is going to be betrayed by one of his closest unless it actually happened. Who would write a story where the Son of God would be crucified and killed? Who would write a story where resurrection would trample over death? Who would write a story where Saul the terrorist would become the church planter extraordinaire? <laughs> like again, God doesn't operate the way we think he ought to operate regularly throughout Scripture. So brothers and sisters, not only can we trust in God's win, but we can trust in his how. Even when all we can do is cry out, Lord, I don't understand, we can follow it up, but I trust you. So much of the Christian life in a broken world is, Lord, I don't understand, but I trust you. Read the Psalms. Read the Lament Psalms. I don't understand, but I trust you. I don't understand your timing, your when but I trust you. I don't understand your how, how you're going to bring about redemption in and through my life. I don't know how you're going to work everything together for good and conforming to the image of Christ, but I trust you. Brothers and sisters, you can rest in his sovereign care. Calvin said, when dense clouds darken the sky and a violent tempest arises because a gloomy mist is cast over our eyes, thunder strikes our ears and all our senses are benumbered with fright. Everything seems to us to be confused and mixed up. But all the while, a constant quiet and serenity ever remain in heaven. So we must infer that while the disturbances in the world deprive us of judgment, God, out of the pure light of his justice and wisdom, tempers and directs these very movements in the best conceived order to a right end. We can trust his when, and we can trust his how. Ultimately, because thirdly, we know the king's why. We can trust his when, we can trust his how, but we, because we know his why. Now we get to the Passover meal continuing into the supper, verse 26. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. So he takes the bread, he blesses the bread and he breaks the bread, all of this being a normal part of Passover meal. However, he redefines the meal when he says, take, eat, this is my body. Something totally different is happening now. So the, the taking, the blessing, the breaking, this is Passover every year to this point. But when he says, take and eat, this is my body, it's, disciples are like, time out, what is happening right now? Something totally new is happening in this moment. Now, he's not saying that the bread literally becomes his body. This would be a wrong interpretation on a number of levels. First of all, he's truly man and truly God, 100% man, 100% God. 
I've never seen a man who can be like, here's my body. I'm going to use my body to hand you a piece of bread, and the bread you're eating is going to be my body and still have his body, right? This makes no sense. Like he's, he's doing something, but he's not saying the bread is his physical body. Now he's saying something about this bread is pointing to his physical body, but the bread itself is not becoming his physical body. He gave the broken bread to show that he was going to give his body to be broken to save sinners. This is obvious as he continues. And he took a cup. And when he given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink of it, all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. So the bread represents his broken body. The wine represents his spilt blood. Now, do you notice what's missing from the traditional Passover meal? So we've got, we've got, we've got the blood. I mean, we've got the, the cup. We've got the wine. We've got the bread. There's no lamb. No mention of a lamb. Why? Now, it's probably the case practically because they're eating the Passover meal the night before Israel would traditionally celebrate the meal. So probably the lambs have not been slain and provided yet practically. But theologically, Jesus clearly has a point. Jesus is the final Passover lamb. On the next night, he will be sacrificed as the disciples' Passover lamb. His body will be broken on the cross. His veins will spill out every single drop of blood. Why? Why would his body be broken? Why would his blood vessels burst forth all of his blood? Why? He gives us two reasons. First, he says, for the forgiveness of sins. Why is his body being broken? Why is his blood being spilt? This is what's required for a holy God to forgive sinful man and be in right relationship with him. Christ died a sinner's death in our place to pay for our sins. And just like the Passover set apart God's old covenant people, so now the Lamb of God being crucified and broken on the cross is setting apart his new covenant people in fulfillment of Jeremiah 31. R.T. France says, as the first Passover led to a covenant which marked Israel out as the people of God, so now a new people of God was being formed. Friends, do you understand the significance of these verses in connection with the supper? We feast on the broken bread physically because we feast on the broken body of Christ spiritually. We drink the cup physically because we drink his blood spiritually. And why? Because there's a great exchange happening. Jesus ate the food of the Father's will and washed it down with a cup of the Father's wrath so that you might be able to eat the bread of life and drink the cup of salvation. He says, I will, I will do the Father's will in my act of obedience. And then I will suffer underneath and drink the cup of God's righteous wrath that you might have the cup of salvation. And that's what this broken uh, bread and broken body and spilt blood and, and wine represents and points us to. Connect all of the dots. Israel was delivered out of their slavery to Egypt. We're delivered out of our slavery to sin. Israel was spared from God's judgment because of the blood of the unblemished, spotless Passover lamb spread upon the wood above the door. We are spared from God's judgment because of the blood of the unblemished, spotless Passover lamb poured out on the cross. Israel was to celebrate the Passover meal to remember God's faithfulness to his people. We celebrate the Passover lamb himself, the ultimate fulfillment of his covenant to Israel and the inauguration of this new covenant people in the Lord's Supper. But friends, I said he gave us two reasons why this was going to happen. For the forgiveness of sins, but the Lord's Supper is not just merely about remembering what Christ did in his sacrifice on the cross and how he was the lamb of God to take away the sins of the world. But secondly, he says, this is to enjoy that future meal with us. There's another meal coming one day. Look at verse 29. 
I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of this vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Jesus closes with this massive promise of hope of the great wedding feast where the resurrected king is joined to his washed, spotless bride. That messianic banquet promised in Isaiah 25 will be fulfilled. The next time Christ will have a meal with his disciples, the wine and the bread, the great banquet will be at the wedding feast of the Lamb, where Christ is married to his church, where there's no more sin and sorrow, no more guilt and shame, no more fighting sin. Christ will be with his bride, the church. We read about it in Revelation chapter 19. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty pearls, peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Brothers and sisters, when we take the Lord's Supper, we celebrate the past work of Christ, what he did on Calvary. We think upon the fact that his body was broken and his blood was spilled to forgive us of our sins, to bring us into right relationship with him. And we also anticipate the future banquet of Christ. When we take the supper, we're reminded we can trust the king's win in our life. We can trust the king's how in our life because we know the king's why. He died, he resurrected in order to forgive us of sins that he might eat a meal with us forever. And so we understand, you know, the why's been accomplished. He's done it. We understand all things are going to work together to that end. So even if I don't know the why or the when or the how, or if I don't know the how or the, or the what's going on or the when, I know the why. I know King Jesus has invited me to feast with him forever through faith. I know that every time we take the supper, we're looking back at that finished work and we're looking forward to that great supper, that great wedding feast. He came to seek and save the lost. He came to serve, not be served by giving his life as a ransom for many. He did so so that our sins might be forgiven and we may have a seat at the eternal feast with the lamb, we as his bride. That's why he came eating and drinking, especially this last earthly meal. That's why we celebrate the Lord's Supper. Because our Christ has done everything necessary to invite us to his feast. I begin by saying nothing has the potential to turn strangers into friends and friends into family like a shared meal. Jesus came to give his life to forgive us from our sins that we might share a meal with him forever. That's what we celebrate in the Lord's Supper. Participation in the Supper is that looking back and that looking forward. Understanding all that he's done. And so he might have a meal with us as his friends, as his family, forever. He invited us to be his friends despite our sin, that we might forever feast with him. Nothing has the potential to turn strangers into friends and friends into family like sharing the Lord's meal. Now this meal we regularly say when we have the supper Maybe non-Christian friends, you've been here before and you're a bit offended because we regularly say this is a meal for those who are already in Christ. Those who put their faith and trust in Christ, they've, they've been baptized, they've, they're in good fellowship with a gospel-preaching church. We let non-Christians know this meal's not for you. Why would we do that? 
Because our great concern is that you have that meal forever. And this meal is only for those who are, have their faith in Christ. That's the only people that will have that meal forever. And so we want to make clear, this is for believers. And we want to say to you, do you wish to have your sins forgiven? Well, look to the broken body of Christ. Do you wish to be reconciled to God? Look to the spilt blood of Christ. That's what we're preaching to your eyes with the Lord's Supper. That's what we preach to your ears every week from the pulpit. That's what we pray and ask God to open your eyes to see. That's what we sing about. That's what we celebrate. That's what we enjoy forever. And we're longing that you would join us. But you must repent and believe in Christ. Because only those who trust in Christ will have this meal forever. Only those who trust in Christ will go from enemies of God to not only friends of God, but the very family of God with Christ our elder brother, having God as our Father. So repent of your sin and trust in the slain lamb of God in your place. Why would you not trade your cup for his even this morning? Why would you not take the cup of salvation and exchange it for the cup of wrath? All because of his grace. Confess your faith in Christ. Pray and ask him to save you and change you and talk to one of us about what it looks like to walk with him. Christians, perhaps you've noticed we're not taking the Lord's Supper today. Maybe you notice it, maybe you don't. Maybe you see the cups out. Maybe you don't. Maybe you noticed we didn't take it last week. Why? Because this is a family meal. And currently, we're reluctantly doing two services. <laughs> and we're going to take the supper when the whole family's together. Because it's a family meal. And so we don't like being in two services because we want the whole family together. I don't know what you do. Some families on Sundays have a family meal every Sunday after church. It's a good thing to do. Invite other people into it as well. But every Sunday when we gather, we feast on Christ by faith through his word preached, by singing the gospel, by praying the gospel and hearing the gospel, having it preached to our eyes. But right now, while we're in these two services, we're saying, no, we can't all be together. We're not taking this meal. Except for once a month, Lord willing. So beginning, Lord willing, October 8th, we'll be right out on the front field under a tent at least once a month. And in those services, we'll have one service on those Sundays. And in those services, that's when we'll do baptism when the whole family's together. That's when we'll take the supper when the whole family's together. That's when we'll covenant with new families or new members joining our church when the whole family's together. We believe it's important to be together. We believe that importance should be demonstrated practically and spiritually. And so right now, we're reluctantly not taking the meal because we're reluctantly being in two services until we can join together into one service. I would ask you, even on that October 8th, make sure you're here. Members of King's Cross, make sure you're here and bring a friend. Let's take the supper together. Let's have new members come in and join our faith family. Let's put on display that we have a God who says, I want to invite you to a meal forever because he's the friend of sinners. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for Christ.